Lots of kids dream of making a movie, but only the ones willing to die for it succeed. to Queer Horror Cult, the uh, podcast that is inevitably late every single time. I know that we said we were going to try and be a little more regular, but oh dear, oh well, who cares? And um, this will be a fun record as I already have a cat climbing me like or some Shadow of the Colossus kind of deal going on. (laughs) Uh, A quick note just before we begin, uh, part of why this was so late going up and episodes will be a bit sporadic, possibly, is we're doing a bit of formatting change. Going forward, unfortunately, we're not really able to consistently do episodes like we normally want to due to busyness with life stuff. So for the foreseeable future, the new format is going to be, I will be hosting each episode with a revolving guest host. Now, this doesn't mean that Aria is gone for good because that is definitely not the case, just more that it's hard to get uh, the movies watched each week and then an episode recorded just with the busyness in our lives. So when she can, she'll be on, but otherwise it's going to be different guest hosts, which I think will be still fun, and I hope this doesn't ruin the experience for too many people. Uh, but today, let's let's start with our first guest host, who I'm very excited to have on that Ari and I were both talking about wanting to get on since, well, since they started podcasting, and probably even before that. Uh, I have the hosts of Bad Dad, Rad Dad here with me, Kylie and Elliot. Hello. Hello. It's uh, so nice to to have you on finally, because, yeah, that wasn't just pattern. We've definitely been thinking, okay, when do we get them on (laughs) to do an episode? Well, it just seemed like such a perfect fit, because we did an episode with you as one of our guests just this last week, and we're just, like, hot off of that. We're like, well, yeah, of course we'd love to come onto the show and continue our conversation. I I think that that also encompasses just kind of the the edict here over at Queer Horror Cult, where it's like, well, we already watched the movie, so (laughs) just, why do extra work if we don't have to? Yeah. Um, Yeah, we talked about having you on for a Father's Day episode, back when we were going to talk about killer dads in movies, but that didn't (laughs) end up happening because we took a hiatus instead. Hey, we'll come back in June for a Father's Day episode. Put a pin in that, because that is great. I would love to talk about killer dads. Uh, it's actually hilarious. The movie that first popped to our mind was one of your first movies covered. And they're like, okay, well, we got to do Come to Come Daddy. Come to Daddy, yeah. 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 <laughs> but yeah, since you're here, do you want to say a little bit about yourselves and uh, your podcast, maybe? Oh, uh, Elliot's throwing to me. Scary. Um, <laughs> yeah, so our show's pretty new, like six months-ish. Yeah, still baby. Still a little baby. Um, our show, Bad Dad, Rad Dad, we started it because we watch a lot of movies and we like to talk about them. So every week we talk about the movies that we watch, but we do it spoiler free. So it's really exciting to be here today and get to talk about something in depth. We kind of talk about our show more like a movie recommendation show. 
where we chat about like what we thought about it without getting into spoilers and then how it made us feel so that people might be able to be like, oh, yeah, I want to feel like that, too. And then at the end, we talk about um, the best and worst dads, gender not uh, being a thing that matters. It can be a pet or a person of any gender or an animated character because we have like pretty complicated relationships with our dads. So it Mm -hmm. um, is a way for us to explore just like what it means to be parented in different ways that aren't biological or tied to our own fathers. (laughs) That's great. Thanks. Well done. Off the cuff. (laughs) Well, that was good. And that's, um, we're big believers of found family here. I don't Mm -hmm. know anyone in queer spaces who who isn't. So Mm -hmm. I really like the concept that dad doesn't have to be so cut and dried as Mm -hmm. to what that could possibly mean. Thank you. Yeah. You're a great creator of um, queer family. Yeah. Elliot, was there anything you wanted to add to that? No, I think you absolutely nailed it. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's born out of this love that we have for movies and out of the relationships, complicated relationships we have with our dads. And yeah, it's uh, like Kylie said, it's it's pretty new still and it's still very exciting. And yeah, I mean, we were already watching five or six movies a week. (laughs) So instead, now instead of unpacking them on our couch, we just unpack them in front of a microphone. So it's just made the most logical sense to start a podcast together that's that's exactly how we started too. <laughs> yeah. it was just like well we're watching movies anyway let's just talk about them yeah i think what's yeah. been so exciting is like the opportunities then to have other people like yourself in on the conversations and us having conversations with you and other people like it's just really been beautiful in that way so thanks for having us on to talk about stuff yeah well, that's great. And uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation, too, because I know as soon as we finished watching the movie, you said, oh, there's things I need to say about this movie. <laughs> so um, it's perfect. We're doing, I believe, the first three, Pete, on this show. Yep, we're doing a movie we've already covered twice before. <laughs> but there's so much to say about this mm-hmm. movie, in my humble opinion, that I, I don't think we'll really retread much ground. And anything we did cover before, I'd love to have your takes on mm-hmm. as well. Uh, but we're covering 2018's Knife and Heart yet again, a movie I will not shut up about. And if you haven't watched it yet, because uh, as Kylie pointed out, this is a very spoiler-filled discussion, pause the episode and go watch it. It's on Shutter. It's available on disc. You might be able to get it from your library. Just watch the damn movie already. I'm tired of banging that drum, because if you haven't watched it by now, just what are you even doing? Uh, this is Knife and Heart 2018 by Young Gonzalez, and... Yeah, this is a doozy. This is a top four movie for you, right, Laurie? Like, I think it's in your top four on Letterboxd. It's on my Letterboxd top four. Uh, My top four on Letterboxd is a very amorphous category. (laughs) It's just sort of, uh, it's kind of like my daddy always talks about top five movies, and his top five list is about 30 movies Mm. long. So, yeah, (laughs) it's kind of where he's at. But, uh, yeah. I guess just to jump into it, did you have any sort of preconceived notions about what to expect with this movie or? Well, the I'll kind of give a little bit of context to the first time we watched this movie. So a, a big component of, of our show is we do what we call mystery movie picks. And when we had you on as a guest, the way that kind of works is that we each pick a movie that nobody else knows what we're picking until the title card comes up on the screen when we're watching it. And the first film that we watched in our week of watching films together was your mystery movie pick. And you picked this. 
And I personally, I had never heard of this at all. Like I, I, I didn't know it at all. You either, Kylie, right? Uh, I, I didn't. But then, Lori, once you were like, I've talked about it a lot and it's on Letterboxd and I, and I looked at the cover art again. I was like, oh, I have seen this. I've just never looked into what it was. So, no, I, I knew nothing about it. Yeah, which I think is like the best way to go into this film, mm. like and having no kind of preconceived notions or idea of what to expect. And then to have it be such a delightful surprise of just how incredible this film actually was, was was just the cha- the cherry on top of the whole experience. I, I can't say that's how I experienced going into it. Like I knew of a decent chunk about it. So it's interesting to hear that it plays so well mm. when you're just completely sort of blindsided by what's coming in this movie. What did you know about it before you watched it for the first time? I knew the basic plot and mm. had seen a trailer. That's mm-hmm. what sold me on it. I try not to watch trailers for things that I know I want to watch, mm-hmm. but that's how I heard about this movie. Was yeah. uh, a trailer came up from a label I followed. So basic plot of this to rehash it for... Uh, Oh, I don't know. This, I guess, would be the fourth time that I'm doing this now <laughs> on a podcast. Is there is um, this woman named Anne, played by Vanessa Parody, who runs a gay male porn studio in 1979. And she's working on what becomes her magnum opus by the unfortunate blending of real life into movies, and that a killer starts picking off her cast. And this is all. I would say that at different times in the movie, the plot, that plot that's kind of the perfect letterbox encapsulation is almost a B plot to the Mm. relationship plot. And they kind of shift back and forth because at the same time, she's dealing with her relationship to, oh God, what was her name again? Uh, Louise by Kate Moran. And they're just kind of combusting. It's Mm. just sort of over for them in this really ugly kind of way and the movie likes to sort of flip between where it's focusing that sums it up would you say at least in a sort of capsule review yeah yeah totally yeah going off the start the start of the movie really hits home the the murder mystery angle of it in that we see this character cruising uh, a gay club and uh, actually cruising's a good word there it reminds me of the movie cruising a fair bit and finds this individual wearing this weird leather gimp mask that it's a perfect slasher movie mask, but in this sort of like very sexualized kind of leather bar way, but it doesn't feel out of place for the the, the leather bar he's in. Mm-hmm. And it, it really hits this uh, unsettling mix of, oh, some, some really sexy scene is about to go down and this like, oh, something really horrible is about to happen. And I, I felt like I was kind of on edge throughout on that. Did, did this opening scene, how did that play for you? Yeah, I would agree. Like, no, so before the scene plays before the title card and as we watched it, not knowing what it was until the title card, I had a inkling that you were picking something that would have murder in it at some point. But Shocker. it's a really... <laughs> initially sexy opening scene and it's intercut with this um footage that not knowing what the film was about when i saw that footage for the first time i didn't know if it was like home footage like of a like just people filming themselves having sex or if it was like an actual video that was made by somebody in the porn industry right right and so that's intercutting and that footage is like pretty sexy too. Um, but then it's got this like voyeuristic thing going on, which kind of creates that menacing feeling, sinister feeling as well. 
and then it turns. And it's like this also filmed so beautifully. So you've got this mix of like aesthetic beauty, really sexy stuff going on, and then it turns really horrific. It's very cinematic too. Very. The score plays into it, mm-hmm. popping in and out of the diegetic score of In the Club. I love that. There's even like a weird bird man just rocking out the drums just as the, <laughs> going through the club. Yeah. Yes. And then the, the score will just like slowly shift into some sort of bombastic actual film score. Yeah. And the moment where um, Carl's his name, right? Yes. Yeah. Where he goes from like the intensity of the like club into like a hallway or whatever where he's alone like the the way that it just kind of like vacuums in in that moment is like really intense in like a sexual desire way at first but then also feels really scary and then when you pair it with that footage from the porn movie that's also being made which feels kind of like very dreamlike mm-hmm. and very it has like a bit of an ethereal kind of vibe to it as well and then yeah you then we kind of hard cut to the like yeah kind of bombastic club scene and then yeah i like how you describe that like it vacuums in on just when when it's just like him and the person in the gimp mask who ends up being revealed to be a murderer it's just like it does a great job of kind of hyper focus hyper focusing the audience on on that moment and where that's going this opening murder scene too it features uh they debut probably one of the more unique murder weapons i've seen in a movie in a while in that the killer pulls a dildo out of his pants that turns out to be a switchblade like a yeah. knife i i don't say this to sound uh pretentious or anything but i'm a bit unplugged from a lot of mainstream movies in that i don't go to the cineplex very often these days i Mm -hmm. kind of i feel like i'm about three years behind what's current and i'm just sort of picking up the pieces as it goes uh so yeah like that's why my uh i'm sort of tracking on to movies that were coming out at the start of the pandemic Mm -hmm. Uh, other than like those big bangers like i always say i went and saw the cronenberg movie the day it came out and all that but Anyway, uh, so with mainstream movies, I've heard a lot of talk, and I've seen this from what I've picked up too, is there seems to be a bit of a desexualization going these days, or at mm-hmm. least movies are a little less sexy. I'm talking more mainstream movies, yeah. of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, is First, is that something that you've noticed at all? And then uh, to segue this question is, do you feel that this kind of pulls this movie out of the mainstream by virtue of it being so sexualized? Great That's a question. really good question. Because we, we do go to the Cineplex a lot. Yeah. Um, and we tend to have a pulse on new movies like fairly soon after they come out. Are movies less sexual lately? I mean, I feel, I feel like this is the sexiest movie that I've seen in a while. Yeah, I would agree. And yeah, like you said, like having had a pulse on kind of the newer releases of things that have come out, I haven't had the feeling... The sexy feeling that I got from this film and anything that I've seen recently that I can think of. And even, you know, in films where perhaps like murder has a sexual component, like say like X. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not particularly sexy. No. Do you know what I mean? Like this blends that like entanglement of desire and destruction and sex and death in a way that even though I quite like X, I don't think X is a sexy movie at all. Mm-hmm. Maybe at all is too strong to say, but I don't really see it as a sexy movie. It's almost like a veneer of sex to backdrop mm. these things on. 
veneer uh, is the perfect word. Yeah. Like the, I, I, just like the, the aesthetic of knife and heart just it, in itself is really sexy. And like, I'm trying to think like you won't be alone. There's like an element of sexiness, like in like, but just like a brief moment of it yeah. or like bodies, 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 like where it's kind of veiled in comedy. It doesn't revel in where it could be sexy. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Even if you took the sex out of Knife and Heart, it's a sexy movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just, that's the vibe. It's a sexy vibe. Very sexy vibe. But I do, I, I'm going to have that in my mind now. Like, are movies less sexual lately? Hmm. Good question. Well, sorry if, if, I, if I've ruined <laughs> that. Like, just, this is like, ah, I just want to watch Spider-Man fight some guys. I don't want to think about his holiday. <laughs> that's what's just going on now. I apologize. Why isn't it. Spider-Man sexy? <laughs> <laughs> that's what I want to see. I want to see Marvel go full sexy with Spider-Man. <laughs> Just the, the like the late 90s erotic thriller of the MCU. <laughs> yeah. Just full shift. Why not? I don't think it's that movies, ne- or from what I've seen, they don't necessarily feel unsexy so much as like in the sense that it's like, ooh, that's gross. But it's, but it's almost like there's a void of yeah, sexiness. Totally. Like, that's more what I'm, I'm thinking. But given that, that if we're... Going on that track, because again, uh, I, I'm speaking more out of what I've heard people say than mm-hmm. what I've experienced myself. What do you think about the fact that sex and violence is so intertwined in this uh, movie? Because Cronenberg has talked about mm. sex and violence being like the perfect bedfellows. I know when I was doing some uh, film school stuff, the guy said the old adage right off the bat that sex and death are the two like most potent things you can include in your writing because it's like love and loss sort of distilled in this very physical kind of way. But I think a lot of the discourse has gotten to a point where we are more aware of sexualized violence mm. and the problematic nature of it. And it's like, when you throw all this stuff in the blender, what do you think that this would be a more problematic movie for other people? So that's a great question because the first time we watched it, when this opening scene happened and, and that reveal of the dildo being like a knife, actually reminded me a lot of a scene and I believe it's American Horror Story Hotel, which mm. like not recommended, oh. um, which has a scene of sexual violence where a I believe it's like a strap on is just like a it's, it's just a weapon like it's not even yeah. actually shaped in a phallic way, I don't think. Um, and it's a deeply upsetting scene. And I, I haven't revisited. <laughs> we don't watch American Horror Story anymore. But I, I don't remember ever thinking anything in that was sexy. Mm. Yeah. And I just I thought it was in poor taste. And it, that's a common like thing in American Horror Story is these incredibly sexually violent. And they tend to be in these queer contexts without actually saying anything or doing anything with that. Whereas I feel like this film is exploring that entanglement of desire and destruction. It's exploring right. the way that sex and death are intertwined through. I, I loved how you said, um, Anne and is it Lu- Louise? How do we say her name? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. How the, I loved that you said combusting. Their relationship is combusting. Mm-hmm. Because so much of this movie is about, like, they talk about fire a lot, and fire is a central plot, and like this mirroring of the literal murders happening with the more abstract sense of how Anne is murdering Louise through the way she treats her in in the wake of their breakup. 
yes, could I, to get back to your question, could I see somebody finding this movie problematic? Yeah. But I think that this movie's saying something through what it's doing, and I didn't at any point feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Whereas I have in other films where I feel like there's not anything being said with the moment of sexual violence. Right. Does that make any it's, sense? <laughs> it's almost a, I, I get what you mean. It's almost a titillation in some other movies. Yeah. Like, it's like shock, right? Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Where it just feels like, oh, it's here to be a moment that people talk about. Mm-hmm. As opposed to being integral to the thematics of the film or TV show. What do you think, Elliot? Yeah, no, I to- I totally agree with you. Like, I just feel like that that link between sex and violence is just rooted so much in passion, and you know, it's kind of passion at. I was going to say it, but at two ends of a spectrum, but it, it's almost not even that. Like sometimes, just in film, it's just so closely linked to each other, and I I feel like they play with that a lot in this in this movie. Where, especially with the character of Anne and then the killer who's later revealed to have the name Guy, just and like that becomes it becomes this thing of like love versus obsession versus uh, versus possession and how they kind of overlap each other. Like the the, when you ask the question, Laurie, like I, I kind of went to that scene where they're they're standing in the rain and Anne has followed Louise to the club. And then she kind of pursues her down the alley and Louise is like trying to run away, trying to get away from her. And then she kind of pins her against the wall and just like has that whole dialogue of like, you must love me. And then starts grabbing her, grabbing her breasts, grabbing her genitals and being like, this is mine. And then we have that kind of cut to Guy in, in his mask watching from afar and it's kind of like equating the two of them of how there's like this Mm -hmm. love and this desire and this passion and that exists in Anne, but that also exists within the character of Guy. And it's just like drawing that line and testing the audience of being like, or like showing them that like neither of these things are okay. Like even though Anne absolutely loves and adores Louise, but like at what cost, you know? So, yeah, I don't know. I, I think that, that sort of play between sex and violence is, um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's rooted in in passion and desire, and it, it can be both. It can be either positive or negative. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's. <laughs> I, I I think that's a great answer. Um, it's interesting. I I was looking over. I have this Blu-ray set that it's the it's called The Islands of Young Gonzalez, and it's mm. a bunch of short films he did. And there's a booklet in there with an interview he did with, see if I get uh, her name right, Elodie Petit, where uh, one of the things that I, I wrote this quote down is he's talking about his movie Intermission. And he says, the night symbolizes the loss of desire and youthfulness mm-hmm. and a certain mm-hmm. innocence too. And I think that sequence really exemplifies that because so much of the ugliness in this movie happens like in the dead of night mm. where there's just this, the darkness of the night really overtakes mm. it's like an emotional darkness that overtakes mm-hmm. these uh you know these uglified versions of beautiful moments like they're just mm-hmm. it's just turned and twisted into this nasty kind of way the the other scene where i really saw that play out was the um the scene where Anne goes to the club and Lu- Louise is there 
with like her partner, or I believe that's her partner. It's mm-hmm. not a named character, I don't think, or a, a, anyway, not important. And we see this like joy going on in the club, like all of this like passion and, and happiness and dancing and love. And then Anne is the voyeur in this instance, right? Like she's looking from above, which then later on is mirrored in that violent scene with the killer looking from above at the two of them. Um, these are almost paralleled scenes to each other. But she's like got this despair to her. And then that's intercut with the character Ter- Terry. <laughs> I'm so bad at French um, being killed. Right. And so we've right, got this, yeah. these like intercuts between like joy, despair and violence all at the same time. And it's just it, it's I, I just noticed that so much more this time. This movie like really benefits from a rewatch. Let me tell you, the first time it's just you're taking it in and drinking in the aesthetics. And mm-hmm. this time I saw so clearly how um, Anne is mirrored in the in the character of the killer. Yeah. Well, and to your point, too, like just think just thinking about it now. So, was, yeah, there's that scene where Anne is above uh, above Louise in the club looking down at her. And then there's also that scene um, when they're in the production studios and they, mm. they're they shooting and Anne is having a cigarette and she's on like the, the ground level. And then Louise is on the upper level looking down at her also having a cigarette. And like the look on Louise's face is just this kind of like seems like frustration or just kind of this sense of you know i i can't i can't keep doing this with Anne. i'm I'm kind of getting over it and then there's just like this look of longing and and desire in Anne's eye as she looks up at louise yeah and it's just there's a lot of motion in just those looks and then yeah the, the shift in just kind of the tone of Anne in in that and then yeah we're kind of intercutting the the murder of T- well, Terry, if if that if that's I'll say that's his name. Um, yeah, there's just there's a lot of mirroring and rep- repetition in here that's really effective and doesn't need a lot of dialogue to get that that sort of emotion across. It's really mm-hmm. well, it's really well done. You both brought it up, and I think it's actually something to to maybe explore a bit further. Um, I, I like that notion of looking. In this movie. Mm-hmm. And especially with Anne, she's sort of constantly a voyeur mm-hmm. in this movie. Like, there's a lot of scenes of her watching. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, that just, uh, it might be a bit of an, an obvious one, but it's just, it really exemplifies something you said in terms of yearning. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. That, that, that distancing of being able to look without interact is so strong here. Like, I think the early one is when she's looking at the hole in, through the hole in the wall at uh, Louise editing the movie that and shot like, is a literal wall between them it's one of my favorite yeah, shots it's, it's <laughs> okay not only my like one of my favorite shots of the movie but just like one of my favorite shots i've ever seen in a film it's so great well yeah. what what do the two of you make to get really film analysis on this of like let's do it her it's her eye in a series of mouths isn't it mm-hmm. yeah what do we make of that that like, should she take action, she will devour Louise. Like, is that is it about that? Perhaps, perhaps she can. It's easier for her to just look without interacting than it is for her to actually like give in the mouth to say something. Mm. For example, like it's uh, she's almost s- silencing herself in a way that's going against her own interests. Mm. And by interests, I mean in terms of what she wants, not in terms of what's possibly the best interest. Mm-hmm. I like that. Because those are very different yeah. in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or it's even just kind of like 
asking the audience the question of like, what does Anne doing this thing say about her? And how does like, what does that mean for her and Louise's relationship? Like is, can you have a functional relationship if that's what she's resorting to Mm -hmm. instead of speaking words or, you know, even I, I I feel like there's a whole lot of conversation about boundaries within this movie and setting boundaries and not, respecting boundaries and things like that and yeah because another version of that is when she what does she put you have killed me into frames of the editing Mm -hmm. yeah it just scratches it uh right into the film cells uh with a switchblade very apt (laughs) very apt um to like get to to speak without speaking in a space Mm -hmm. that she knows louise will encounter it um yeah it's really intense. And it hits a point where, you know, Louise says, don't contact me again. I will finish editing the film. But mm-hmm. then that's it. So they really only have film mm-hmm. as like that really sort of preempts just the way that it's like we have this film, but then we're two or two islands. We're separate from each other. And there's barring that. that really beautiful scene where the, after the picnic where they all have their like mm-hmm. rap party picnic and there's a storm, and Louise kisses Anne. Does, does she kiss her? Like she, uh, they kiss. I, I think so. Yeah. I think Louise initiates the kiss, and like Anne takes this as like, okay, finally we're gonna get back together. And then Louise says, "You mustn't stand under trees in a storm. We might catch fire." And to me, that's just the perfect metaphor for like, it doesn't matter how much they want each other. Like it, it's their relationship is a storm, mm-hmm. right? And it will consume them if they engage in it. Yeah. No, totally. Yeah. But then what do you do with that yearning? Yeah. Yeah. God. <laughs> um, yeah. I just, I was kind of, I, I was, I was just thinking about, you know, like we were kind of speaking about the parallels between Guy and, and Anne. And I was, I was I was thinking about the title and and I don't know maybe this is like just like super low hanging fruit maybe you two already thought about this and I'm just a big dummy over here but like the the title knife and heart like it's almost like Guy's weapon is a knife whereas Anne's weapon is her heart and whether that's like you know the weapon against herself weapon against other people like from what she's doing with Louise, but also what she's doing. Like, I I think that there's also an ethical thing with um, the fact that she's mirroring all of this very tragic, very real stuff that's going on with like friends and employees of hers being murdered. And then she just wants to cash in on that by putting it into her films. And like, I think she's asked at one point, like, do you even like, are you even affected by this? So yeah, it was just kind of like, I don't know, maybe overthinking it, but that's kind of where I, I was like, that's what the title is kind of starting to mean for me in this. I think that's really interesting. Uh, I hadn't uh, put it that way in my mind for sure. And that really goes well with the translated title too, because mm. uh, in English it's knife plus heart, you know, mm-hmm. it's bringing those together. Whereas the, I believe the direct translation would be a knife in the heart. Oh, mm. it, what do you, what is the French title? Is it uh-huh. like, is it doll? Yeah, it's oh. couteau dans le coeur. Yeah, that is different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Darn translations. <laughs> but but I think that's interesting because uh, both of those kind of uh, 
if you want to really get uh, semantic about the title, mm-hmm. both of those can kind of lend themselves to certain readings on the movies. Well, because, it, yeah. it is so, like, as a, I guess, folks listening to queer horror cult who don't listen to our show might not know this, but I'm a high school English teacher. So I'm constantly asking my students to think about titles. Right. And inevitably, as someone who's doing this day in and day out, it come, like it just makes its way into how I view film. So I, I was thinking about the title a lot. And in my notes, I kept like comparing it to heart is desire and knife is destruction. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I, it's the lens through which I then rewatched the movie when I, when we watched it again to talk about it. Um, but I also think your reading's totally valid. That's so interesting. Cause yeah, you're kind of reading it as like opposite sides of the same coin. Whereas I kind of saw them both as weapons weapons of destruction yeah or as i saw it as like desire can destroy you mm-hmm. and you can be destroyed by desire and both of these things exist and it's kind of like this entanglement of those two things yeah did you have a different kind of reading or takeaway from the title for yourself Lori? no um for me it really was about the uh it, it was very much hearkening to the tragedy of this movie mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. like the more the characters, especially Anne, let themselves desire something, the more it kind of is part of like their downfall mm-hmm. almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it, it's almost, it's dangerous to have desire in this movie. And it's, um, it actually, uh, as this is a good segue, there's a quote from those interviews where uh, Gonzalez says that uh, he's speaking about his first shorts, but this kind of goes through all his work, it seems is the idea that sexuality is haunted by death. Mm-hmm. And um, there's the, the, that combination is everywhere in this movie. Like any s- sort of desire, whether it's emotional connection, love, sex, any combination, just seems so violent in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like there's the mm-hmm. part where she goes to, uh, and goes to that sort of uh, lesbian cabaret. Yeah, yep. And... Mm-hmm. There's that performance piece where the lady is singing as this bear mauls her to the point that there's just fake blood splattered all over the stage. And it's this weird, like, they're embracing while the one, uh, would the bear be the top in this situation? Like, <laughs> I, th- I think, think so. so. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. So the top uh, it just, like, bloodily mauls her. Like, it's all stage. It's stage within the movie. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think the and, final line of that performance is the more I kill you, the more I love you. Oh, that's good. Well, and it, like it's interesting, too, because that it seems to strike an emotional chord with Anne, yeah. who gets up and leaves in the middle of the performance as well, which is so interesting, like just given how violent it is. And you're kind of left to wonder what it was that put it over the top for her that made her want to walk out. Right. Um, that's a good question. From just, uh, I, I really like what you brought up, Laurie, and like from, I feel like from like a non-sexual lens, a moment that kind of stuck with me this time was the innkeeper when she goes to, uh, mm. she, she goes to stay there and she goes into the woods and goes to Guy's grave. But the, she, when she comes back, the innkeeper asks um, Anne to not give uh, his daughter any more liquor. And he says, she wanted to leave. She's all I have. So he's like trying to keep her there again. It's just like lending itself. It's not in a sexual way, but it's just like this not healthy way that he's holding on to her and he's not going to let his daughter go. And clearly just through the couple of interactions that she has with Anne, 
she feels like she's being able to escape a little bit and getting a taste of like not being under the roof and the, I don't know, you can almost say possession of her father. Yeah, that was one that I, um, like I, I wrote and I, I was taking notes and I said her wanting to leave the city and I put thematic connection question mark. Like I, I wasn't, mm-hmm. I had a sense that it mattered, but I couldn't figure out why. Hmm. Uh, sorry, wh- which character leaving the city do you mean? Or not leaving, leaving to, wanting to leave to the city rather. Leaving for the city. Yeah, okay, I did not be... say that properly. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> Can't read my own uh, writing. Yeah, I was just like, wait, hold on, who's leaving the city? And <laughs> no. Like, right, right, I gotcha, I gotcha. Um, I think uh, that might speak a bit to the sort of uh, queer aspect of this movie. Like, while this character mm. isn't quoted as, or coded as being queer, you know, there's a long, like, we had a whole unit on it in the class that we met in. We, uh, for people <laughs> that, depending on the order you're listening to this, because we did talk about this briefly on Bad Dad, Rad Dad, um, Kylie and I met in a university course on queer theories and cultures. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole unit about rural queerness or almost the lack mm-hmm. of queer resources in rural settings and how much harder community building is. And maybe that's a bit of the queer lens of this movie taking mm. over where, you know, the city is this sort of more glamorous, like, that's where my people are. Yeah, where you can... Notion. And then that almost, that seems to connect to the scene where Anne goes to the woods and sees Guy's mother, who says, like, you're one of his friends from the city. Like, yeah. like that this type of queer joy, but also queer destruction, yeah. is, um, like, it's being seen only in the city and not as a possibility here although destruction happens in both places mm-hmm. and joy happens in both places too but it's a secret in these rural spaces yeah. it's like a private intimate secret where it can be more public and communal it seems in the city yeah and yeah maybe you're like, like kathy is a is yearning for that yeah oh that's a it's, really beautiful um, reading of that yeah well thinking of, of what you mentioned in terms of uh and being like one of the guys from or one of the friends from the city and uh that openness does have limits in the city mm-hmm. though, given like the 1979 like uh when uh Anne is following louise and she shows up at the nightclub there's still the guard at the door it's like what's the password mm-hmm. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. like it's still it's almost these enclaves of openness stuck at like in this less permissive outer shell totally you look at the structures of society like the cops who just have totally don't want anything to do with the investigation because yeah. you're, you're like that. You're those people. Yeah. When they're having like, I think it is one of the final or the final, one of the final scenes with the cops and they say, stop working, stay home. It's safer. Yeah. Right. Like it's, it is your responsibility to keep yourself safe and we will have no part of it. Whatever safe then means in that context. Right. It's a pretty pointed scene and I think it's really well done. Yeah. And there's just like, there's these kind of moments throughout that, like even like I kind of, I caught a little bit of it in like the opening shot, like of the, of the porn film, uh, like where it's kind of hidden in this sort of wooded like enclave. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like you said, it's very voyeuristic. Like everybody's kind of hiding in the bushes, seeing that happen and then even like the scene where they all go on kind of the rap picnic like again it's in the same kind of place like it's very secluded 
and kind of tucked away. And then, yeah, like you're saying too, Lori, there's all these like clubs, restaurants. You need a bars. ticket to get into the theater. Yeah, right? exactly. It's, like it's all these kind of like safe havens that they're finding throughout the city and outside of the city. Um, and then, yeah, like I, I kind of took that that moment that you mentioned earlier when they're at the picnic and the wind picks up. Like that's almost like this kind of universe telling them to like get the fuck out of there because mm-hmm. of like what's about to happen or what's coming. Yeah. Kind of like uh, as if um, the the cop's attitude of stay home it's safer is like you know the attitude sucks that that's what you're at but we live in a hostile society that Mm -hmm. sadly there's that's kind of a truth especially given the Mm. setting of 1979 like this was during the onset of the aids crisis Mm -hmm. and uh, i don't know what france was like Mm -hmm. in the late 70s early 80s in terms of gay acceptance and all that but i know north america it was still very underground Mm -hmm. to do this kind of stuff yeah, I think pairing that line of stay home, it's safer. And then they say, well, fuck you. We will live our lives and be out in public. And then and then this happens in that space. Yeah, it's just, I really liked how you said that. Like, it's the hostile truth of the world, particularly at this moment in time. But not not there now either. It's almost a way of affirming that... Uh the potentially sad truths that are buried in there without uh, it being an I told you so. Yeah. I never felt it was like victim blamey. No, not for a second. No. This one. Yeah. Well, I was trying to like, like kind of like you brought up Lori, like kind of looking at this through the lens of the AIDS epidemic and what was happening there and almost kind of equating Guy and what he's doing to the this this group of people as like he's kind of the human stand-in for the AIDS epidemic and it's like slowly killing off members of this small group of people and you know it's it's the the cops reaction to it is like very much brushing it off not taking it seriously just saying like oh if you like Essentially, if you don't want to get AIDS, don't go out, don't do anything, don't see any of your friends or loved ones. Um, but I, lo- I, I, I kind of love in the end where it's this group of gay men like kind of conquering that in the movie theater by kicking the shit out of him and, and, yeah. and then stabbing him to death. So it's kind of that metaphor of like, we're going to do what we want. You're not going to scare us. And we, like we're gonna live our lives the way we want to live our lives, which when you kind of look at it through that lens, I thought it was actually pretty powerful. But then it's doubly complicated because he's a queer man who has experienced trauma and violence and is now enacting that, mm-hmm. and then is destroyed by a community that he could have been a part of. Yeah, that's true. I think I think that really speaks a lot to the the sadness and mm-hmm. loss of this movie because uh, I do like that reading in terms of. Um, the AIDS epidemic because like both the the police attitude and just like the how do we stay safe kind of thing mm-hmm. really hits into that uh Reaganistic mm-hmm. idea that was going on where oh this is something that's happening to gay people so we don't have to take it seriously yeah. we being mainstream society mm-hmm. yeah and if you don't want to get AIDS then don't have sex with right like yeah, yeah. rather than let's promote safe sex let's mm-hmm. but it is complicated yeah, there's not really a cut and dry way to to watch this film. Like, there's so many. Uh, it's it's so 
it's so brilliant in the way it delivers itself. I feel like there's so many readings and so many ways you can kind of take it. And you're totally right. Watching it a second time, you're able to appreciate more of that. Well, you see all that mirroring and layering and there's just so many ways that like these, the situation, and you, you said it right at the at the top, Lori, where you said, we, we keep shifting focus within the film between this plot line of the breakup between Anne and Louise and Anne's like desperate yearning to have that relationship back. Mm-hmm. And then this murder mystery. Mm-hmm. Like we keep cutting between them, but they are mirrors of each other. And then those mirrors like proliferate out with it's shown in the, you know, the little lesbian club with the animal devouring <laughs> sex musical, whatever that was. Like we've just got, and then it's reflected in the films that Anne is making. And we just have and then these flashbacks to dreamlike memories and they just keep pl- proliferating out all these kind of different versions of a similar experience. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. Like, I think you couldn't really call either, and like it, it wouldn't be correct to, to say that the A plot and B plot are yeah. the relationship and the murder mystery. They're Like you couldn't really have one without the other, not in the way that the story tells it. So I feel like they're both the knife and they're both the heart. It's not like you can't easily parse one. Like at, at first it might seem like the murder mystery is the knife in the title, mm-hmm. but it's not. There's heart in that too. It started with, you know, the one of the final lines of the movie is like heartbreaking. His life is nothing but a succession of faraway desires. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's rough. Uh, like it's I, I guess... beautiful, but haunting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess just to quickly just uh, make sure that viewers or listeners, um, in case it's been a while since you've seen this movie, um, the movie, as we set up, is a series of murders targeting this film studio, and they're mirroring, they're sort of following along with the porno film they're making, that they start making a porno film about the murders which in itself is another blending of that mm-hmm. in that they're taking real life violence and then they're making it sexy. So it's not just like mm-hmm. sexy stuff becoming violent. Mm-hmm. It, it goes both it's directions. It's violent stuff becoming sexy. Movies. Yep. Yeah. And it's, it's weirdly recursive in that sense, mm-hmm. but as it goes and goes, we get to uh, the part where she's watching the finished movie in the theater. And the reveal is that the killer was this uh, gay youth who was closeted and caught by his father who committed a violent act on him, tried to kill him, and or tried to burn uh, his son and his son's lover to cover up the violence and all that. But the son lives and now is uh, hiding out in the city of Paris, sort of an outcast from gay society, but also an outcast from straight society. Mm-hmm. And uh, he wanders into the movie theater and he sees one of Anne's earlier porno movies and he starts killing and it mirrors what happened to him, but there's a happy ending Mm -hmm. to it. Like it's the same thing, the dad catching the young lovers and then uh, going to to burn it all down. Uh, But before he, instead of uh, killing them, they burn the shed together and all dance around it and like sort of joyfulness kind of thing as if the father almost accepts him being that it's like trash 70s porno it accepts in a very uncomfortable <laughs> yes. way but mm-hmm. um it's almost like that 
yearning and the destructiveness around it or that inability to get it fits for the killer too. It's not just mm-hmm. something that applies to the who are the more obvious victims in this movie because the killer is a victim. Mm-hmm. What came to my mind as you said that is, and I hadn't thought about it, you said that so wonderfully, is in Anne's porno version of what happened, it's almost like that burning of the shed where the, the two boys are hide, like able to have this private intimacy but also have to hide the relationship from the world. The burning of that is let's burn the secret down and, and be joyously queer in public. Mm-hmm. Like, let's just be ourselves. Oh, that's interesting. Whereas in the actual events that happen, it's let's burn this secret down so it's buried and hidden forever. Yeah. Hmm. I want to. I want to ask the two of you. Like, do you? Because throughout the movie, and we're kind of meant to understand that Anne is having these recurring dreams, and it's like this negative footage retelling of Guy's story and what mm-hmm. happened to him. So, what I take from that is that those are Anne's dreams that she's having about this. Like, do, did that? Is that just meant to kind of reinforce the connection the two of them have for the viewer? Does she actually like is is this a bit of a supernatural thing because it is like hyper accurate to what happened to Guy, or is it just you know maybe the thoughts or the ideas that gave her the gave her the idea for the film that she, the porno film that she made of those events like what where do you guys kind of stand on that where do you what's your thought about what's being told there well Elliot, I remember you asking this like the first time we watched it, and so it's I just kind of went along with it. I accepted the <laughs> dream like, but I actually yeah. think they have a, a scene that um, justifies that part of the story. And it's the scene with, um, uh, like, I don't know. I don't remember the character's name. She's the one that's killed in, in the woods. Um, but she says that she's got like, she said, if I wasn't uh, in this line of work, I would be a fortune teller and holds Anne's hand and says like, you have a gift too. You need to st- like you need to trust it, you need to see it. So I think that that's a moment where the film says she has some kind of premonition-like or ability to look into or connect in this like telepathic way with people. That that was my, I'm, I felt like the film was telling us that this is justified within the context of the story. Yeah. But of course, I'm sure that there's more symbolic readings of that too. I was just like, oh, they did. They gave us a reason. That's a, yeah, that's a good point. Then it's just like, then like the next question is like why Guy? Like why have that connection with, with Guy of anybody? I know I'm I'm not saying that this needs answers. Like I, I love yeah. I love a David Lynchian total just like get lost in your head about the whole thing, but Right. Um I think it, it almost adds a bit of a if you want if we're diving into this aspect, it kind of adds almost a like cosmic connectedness through the medium of film mm. in that the constant that is so similar for everyone in this is the movie. Like we're, it's all focused around uh, Anne's earlier film, and we don't find that out till the end. Um, that Anne almost predicted, like, or you know, like at the same time, perhaps wrote what happened to Guy into a movie, but a different alternative version of it. Mm-hmm. And then Guy sees that, and it sets him off on the murder spree, and it's. Like, I don't think one really predicts the other. Like, her mm. visions are helping give little clues to mm-hmm. what's going on. But 
that connection it, it does it doesn't play like you'd expect an investigation where it's like i had a vision the killer did this that means like that's why I, I was had so much trouble with this aspect, actually, because it doesn't come into the plot really more than just the visions. Mm-hmm. Like, she figures it out, perhaps because of these visions, like, makes that connection in her head, and then we get that little narration at the end that kind of ties it up. Mm-hmm. But, like, are the visions something that, that are directly in her head, or are they something that they're being told to us, the audience? Mm. Like, What's an interesting thing that came to my mind as you said this that I hadn't thought about I don't think I was thinking as much as I might on a third or fourth watch of this film which it (laughs) deserves about the the role of film and thinking you both through that character of Kathy the like innkeeper's daughter I hadn't really been thinking about this the idea of like the rural versus the urban I feel like we so often like queer folks are so often first chance to like recognize your queerness is seeing it reflected in film and television, especially if you don't live in a space where there's anybody like you around. And this film seems to ask an interesting question of what happens when you see that reflected to you, when you see something on film that you recognize in yourself. Mm -hmm. Because there, there is such a push, I think on, uh, queer depictions entertainment like the word you always hear is representation yeah like it always comes down to how are we represented how aren't we represented and and what's the right uh, way yeah right? no queer yeah. trauma only queer joy which i find is uh just kind of undoes itself if you're talking about it's like what about a horror movie where everyone's queer in it what 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 do you do then yeah. <laughs> you know? queer joy only but th- but then there's this interesting reflection of Guy's response to seeing his story and like his real life story and enjoy instead of trauma. His response to that is to destroy. Yeah, he almost destroys that which he couldn't have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's really sad. It's real. This is, this is a, a trap. It's a tragedy. Yeah. It's a really heartbreaking film. Mm -hmm. Um, That actually. See, I pulled a few quotes from this interview. I decided about 20 minutes before we start, <laughs> ooh, homework, do that. Um, there are, he, he talks a lot about his filmmaking in general, and I can see these quotes being represented in Knife and Heart. Uh, one thing that he says is, today, something that bothers me is the difficulty to believe in absolute romance. This mm-hmm. absolute emotion that's harder to find at 45 than when you're 25 or 30 years old. And perhaps that's some of the disillusionment that's going on for Guy in this moment is that he sees that absolute romance in the movie and it wasn't his reality. And there's mm-hmm. almost like a feeling robbed, like mourning what he didn't have. Yeah. Yep. And that's, and that's echoed in Anne too, with her whole relationship with, with Louise. Mm-hmm. Like, and I, I feel like even though Anne continues to pursue her like i feel like she makes herself in in the film that she makes based around the murders that are happening around her she makes herself the killer in it mm-hmm. um oh, it's more of that nice mirroring of yeah the plot for sure well and then and then later on when she's watching it in the cinema she sees louise as the person that like as the killer that gets killed at the and end. herself as the one who did the killing yeah yeah when in the film, oh my goodness, it's so recursive because in the film, Archie is playing 
a fictionalized version of Anne <laughs> yeah. that then kills a fictionalized version of the killer played by Anne, who then she sees as Louise <laughs> and herself as the ver- fictionalized version of herself. It's wild. Yeah. Let's His all go back to school and write PhD so thesis on this. <laughs> yeah, that's what I. one thing I really love about this movie is I always find something new every time I watch it. And when you sit here and pick at it, it just there's more and more that mm-hmm. you can pull out of mm-hmm. the, the, the flick. But uh, actually, that segues right into another quote that I think uh, fits well with this line of discussion. He says that his first shorts, uh, Sexuality is Haunted by Death. Mm-hmm. And the interviewer mentions that the dead lover comes back and the ghosts are f- like the phantoms of it are echoed. Like there's a lot of ghostly lovers and uh, love being tied in with some sense of death. And he says, I think it comes from loving people intensely that didn't love me back. And I can't think of like, mm-hmm. like Anne and Louise's relationship is just, that's the thesis statement mm-hmm. for, for that kind of notion. Because uh, another plot point that happens that's very sad is that Louise dies protecting Anne towards one of the more brutal. Yes, yeah. brutal. Mm-hmm. And then so it's- sad when... Like, to think of that idea of a ghost in... I really am taken with, like, the different ways we can think of the word ghost. Um, And when Anne goes to watch her finished film that, you know, in her final letter to Louise that you you already talked about, Louise said, I will finish editing the film and then I never want you to talk to me again. Mm -hmm. And Louise's name comes up as editor. Someone comes up to her at the end of the film and says, "This I've seen all of your films. This is your masterpiece. She says, Louise did it all. And he said, who's Louise? Yeah. Like she means everything to Anne and Anne knows she destroyed her emotionally and Louise loved her still and protected her in the end and that was her death. Mm-hmm. Um and and no nobody else knows Louise the way she does. Like it's a really heartbreaking moment. Mm-hmm. And it's echoed at the very end when we get into the credits. Yeah. Where we see that sort of uh almost like Greek chorus tableau mm-hmm. yeah. of like some hedonist bot from Futurama orgy going on in this like nicely lit room. Midsummer Night's and Dream meets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but then as we see this sort of almost fantasy sequence, because um, it's it's hard to say. It's like, okay, this is the next film they're making, but there's also elements of the fantastic happening mm-hmm. in it. Uh, she sees Louise come back like as a ghost, essentially, or a vision of some kind. And they have that fleeting stare, but they're never able to connect and then she's gone once again and then all of you make of that i I was really i have a lot of question marks by this because it feels ethereal at first Mm -hmm. where you're right i'm like is this film really happening or is this a dream or is this an afterlife is this Anne's dream is this louise's afterlife and then after that happens everybody kind of freezes and we move from this like intense whiteness to like a dimming of the lights and like a blue, a cool blue tone yeah. where at first it seems really like happy and and then it just feels really, it's the word I'm looking for, like grief stricken, really like it's like the film was going to end us end on this happy note and then it reminds us like, nope, you you never get over grief. I don't yeah. know. What did you guys think? Yeah. Well, I, 
I'm so happy we're talking about this because this this is one of my favorite scenes of the movie, if not my favorite scene of the movie. Uh, like, I find I've the first time we watched this and rewatching it, I find this whole end sequence so moving and powerful. And um, yeah, like you have all this like surrealist kind of stuff happening. You have it. It feels you know there's a little bit of humor in it with um uh archie kind of dressed like very like mr tumness look um and but like the scene just hits like a brick and it's also i mentioned this on on our show but the song that's used during this in sequence is by jeffrey Cantu ledesma it's called love's refrain and it's just like this very electronic but like just like sound wash track that just kind of overtakes the scene the way that just like the overwhelming whiteness of the scene is also overtaking the scene mm. and then eventually overtakes uh, Louise at the very, at the very mm. end of the sequence. And it's just like, it's just this all consuming thing. And it's, yeah, it's just like this piece about, is it about grief? Is it about loss? And then at that, and the end moment, there's this really tender moment. It's just with a look between Archie and, and Anne where they just kind of smile at each other and it ends with Anne, with like a smile like so is it is it also speaking to how you move on and how you continue after a loss or like like what the next step is the the grief continues but the ability to acknowledge that with others i don't know yeah i I don't you make of it laurie i don't know you've seen this film so many times oh god yeah (laughs) i was gonna say way too many times but i don't think that's possible um (laughs) i think it it's I would call this scene very bittersweet mm-hmm. yeah. because it's almost also a bit of an acceptance that things are the way they are and they're not what is wanted. But to like, like she has that fantasy of uh, Louise, if we're looking at it from her perspective mm-hmm. of what's happening. And it just kind of cements that like, this is someone that she had in her life, someone she loved. And that's no longer the case. It doesn't undo that love, but it also makes for this, uh, like it's very bittersweet because she's able to remember like how much this person meant to her, but then it's bitter because that time is gone mm-hmm. and there's the, you know, in the most uh, irreversible way possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's almost now that you said that you both have helped me reframe my understanding of this, that that's what she needed to be able to do while Louise was alive and she was never able to do it to remember the beauty of their love, but to accept that their relationship was over. And it takes Louise's death for her to be able to finally reach a point of accepting the unacceptable, which is that her desire can't be reciprocated in the in the way she wants it to, and her love won't be reciprocated in the way that she wants it to. And how tragic that she doesn't square that away while Louise is alive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Isn't this the thing we're all trying to do in therapy? <laughs> <laughs> Just accept the stuff that we uh, can't have anymore. Uh, it's it's just so easy to do, isn't it? It's so easy. <laughs> well, and I've been kind of trying to figure it out in my head, and maybe maybe we can ch- chat it out a little bit here. But I'm 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 trying to think about. I, I kind of was thinking about ruminating on the 
the pale-eyed birds, the grackles, I think that they yeah. were called. Mm-hmm. And the story that's told when they kind of go to the 14th Street of Charms or like that big obelisk in like this very dreamlike forest uh, kind of vibe with... Uh, I love that imagery. Beautiful. It's so good. There, yeah. It's so good. And then Homeboy is a great jacket that just conceals <laughs> his one hand. I love it so much. Um, but they tell this story about the birds that we've seen kind of throughout the movie every time that the killer is present. And is just about to kill somebody. But the story that's told about the birds is that they actually show up after somebody has died. And then they take that death up to the sun. Like people would leave bodies in like the woods or whatever it was. Then those birds would come and take the death to the sun. And they get too close to the sun, which is why they're, they're now blinded. But it's this idea of taking death away. But it seems like every time the birds show up, death is about to happen. Mm-hmm. Like it, they never... With the exception of the, when the killer is killed at the very end of the film, the bird always shows up before somebody is killed, not mm-hmm. after, until that end scene. But also shows up uh, on Louise's shoulder right when the storm begins and then is there in the scene where um, Anne assaults Louise hmm. as well. So it's almost a not just literal death. Correct. Yeah, that's how I saw it too. Yeah, but it's like it's not taking death away, but it feels rather that it's bringing death or it's bringing harm or hurt. Well, the the language that's used, and of course in a translation it's always hard to know directly, is that the birds absorb death Mm -hmm. and then fly to the sun to burn death off. Yeah. And more of that burning metaphor too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was also interested in what you two made of that character who like Pierre is his name who like tells her about the birds and he has this hand that looks very bird like yeah and 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 in like a monstrous way right and who I imagined is his mother says like don't you don't worry about that he has like a genetic disorder and it begins with the hands and then the entire body mutates that felt very genre okay Mm -hmm. like it that kind of that element, and actually, just the inclusion of the birds and the feather, is a lot of uh, Jalo coming okay. into play. I think mm. uh, this is this is a very more literal film thing than a, like a philosophical take. I think there is deeper meaning there that I maybe don't quite have a a pulse on yet. But it those movies they would have uh, red herrings ahoy, and they'd also mm. have like, the weirdest clue that it's. Um, this specific clue is almost what will hinge the movie around. Okay. Like, uh, you see it in the titles too. Like, uh, Argento did movies called stuff like a uh, bird of the crystal plumage, cat on nine tails, mm. four mm. flies on gray velvet. And those elements of the title would always be like a little thing. That's like, that's sort of the, the linchpin to figuring out everything. Gotcha. And, uh, so it just reminded me of those things. I don't know if it was done specifically to sort of celebrate the films that mm. this movie is uh pulling from or uh yeah because that turning into a bird is uh or maybe this is a time travel movie <laughs> and he becomes the drummer that we see at the start of 100 percent, yeah just full bird now <laughs> well, i did a, a link that i did so what i have my like collection of thoughts was we have that line it's immediately followed by scenes of like the dream footage of what actually happened to Guy. Um, and then shortly after that, we get like Louise's letter, her last letter that she writes to Anne in which she says, like, I've also loved you for 10 years, but in a matter of seconds, you destroyed that love. You turned it into a monster. 
Oh, that's interesting. And so like this idea that it can start small and eventually become monstrous. Mm-hmm. Like it can be the thing that you can hide in a pocket and like not, you know, hide from mm-hmm. certain people that you have this monstrousness in you. Um, which, you know, rewatching the film, Anne is doing some monstrous things from the very beginning, right? Mm-hmm. Like she, her phone call, the first time we see Anne, she is calling Louise on the, f- on, a, on the phone in a pay phone. And she says, I need you because I had a nightmare. I need you to hold my hand. And Louise says, stop this game. And she tells her like, I need you to not be drunk. I need you to... Like, this is why we aren't together. And then immediately the tone shifts and Anne says, you bitch, what if I was dying? Mm-hmm. And it's like, hold, like what? Hold up here, right? This like flipping back and, and forth between like, I want you, I need you, I'm yearning for you. And like, you're like, I want to destroy you. Yeah. This this scene hit me differently watching it the second Knowing time. Knowing where the movie goes. Yeah. yeah. But it also just kind of hit me on a bit of a personal level because I was in... The, the, the dynamics of that particular scene reminds me of a high school relationship that I was in where when you're in high school and you're, and you're in a relationship, there's just so much passion and hormones that go into that, pa- that passion that you have. And I've, I totally had, you know, when we started to get to the tail end of that relationship, just so many of those kinds of things where it's like, I love you so much. I need you. And then, you know, then, then if, you know, you needed to get away from that, then it just, yeah, immediately turns to just like, you're the worst. I hate you. Like you don't love me and stuff like that. And then, but that scene is also buttoned with like what I think is one of the most obliterating lines of the whole thing, which is when Louise says, my heart has gone dry. And just like, what a way to encapsulate that feeling of like, there's no more love left for you here that I can give to you. So stop asking for it. And it's it's not saying I don't love you anymore. But, but there's I can't I can't continue to offer love to you. Yeah. You've you've taken everything that I've had yeah. to give you. Yeah. This movie is so sad. Yeah. 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 And so beautiful. But, but I do like how um as you mentioned, uh, like just how sort of relatable that kind of thing mm-hmm. is. is. Even when this movie goes to extremes in some small way, it does feel kind of realistic in its messiness of breakups mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Because, mm-hmm. you know, they're being very bombastic. And I think high school is a great way to put that where it's like, you've killed me. I'm killing you. Mm-hmm. Like we've, we're dead. And like that kind of <laughs> language. Yeah. Where it's like even for the easiest of breakups or the like the chillest of breakups, emotionally, they can still just, they can feel like everything, you know, because like your your world's changing. And that person know? becomes a ghost to you or, or the version of yeah. them that you knew, right? I've had friendships that were like this as well and like friendship oh, breakups yeah. that were like this that felt this intense, um, mostly in high school as well. But mm-hmm. I had a friend who would uh, who I'm no longer friends with because my heart went dry, you guys, <laughs> <laughs> who would like test your friendship in a way of you you have to prove to me your endless devotion to me as a friend and would get like very drunk and would be like you don't care about me you don't love me if you did you would this and this and this and and that was a friendship Mm -hmm. throw romance into that i think that friendships get a bit of a bad societal rap in terms of how powerful they can be like it's like oh it's not family and it's not the person you love so you know it's it's not a big deal kind of thing it's like oh i've had some 
wonderful moments with friendships and some messy moments, like you've been saying, well, abso- through your experience. Absolutely. I, I, Lori, I don't know if you know, know this, and I think I've mentioned it briefly on our show, but I had a very intense, very important, informative, and familial relationship with a friend um, who became family and she ghosted me after 13 years of friendship. I haven't spoken to her in six years. Um, And we were, we'd been friends since we were 13. We had lived together. Um, Like everybody saw us as a duo and she was very important to, to Elliot as well. And it has been in many ways harder to navigate than the death of my father because it's so unexplainable like how can someone who meant so much to me just cut me off and become a ghost and and i i've really like that term ghosting right yeah which is this very current term that we use i've become very um interested in in what it means because Mm. of this thing that's happened and it's yeah it's something that i i think in the last last year or so i've i've worked with like figured it out more than I ever have before how to like navigate that and let that go but it's one of the most difficult things that's ever happened to me and I will never stop feeling grief for the end of that friendship because I don't understand what happened because this person has not allowed me to understand yeah yeah that's heavy that's heavy yeah it is uh it's an it's an intense thing and I and it speaks to something that we talked about I don't even know if we talked about it on our show, but we talked about it, the three of us together, relationships and family not having to be this normative thing, right? Like that this film revels in what it means to create different forms of family and love. Yeah. The scene in the park before the uh, wind picks up is some of the most beautiful stuff in this movie. Absolutely. It's it's also one of the more plainly done moments in this movie mm-hmm. yeah that, there's just a joy there i love that just sweeping shot of each of the people that are sitting on, on the picnic blanket and it just kind of mm-hmm. shows each of them and i feel like it culminates that that one sweeping shot with just like this one person just so elegantly and very, in very like grecian kind of way eating grapes <laughs> and i I, kinda I love that harkens to the ending it like, does this is, yeah uh, big time it, it's Without the sex, yeah. but it's still got the passion behind it. Um, just it's a different kind of passion. Yeah, despite this movie being violent and sexual and incredibly tragic, it also has this way of showing the bonds that we can create outside of biological family where we create the families that we need. Mm-hmm. Even when, like, I, I love that character of Archie and how he recognizes all of the shit Anne's doing and he loves her through it. Yeah. And we see that with the smile at the end, right? That, mm-hmm. like, I am here for you through this. I don't know. This movie's. Which what is what so makes good. him a rad, rad dad. dad. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> this is, there's a reason this is one of my favorite movies. I think it's probably pretty clear after this discussion. I think Were there any sort of parting thoughts that you had about the film i think you're turning it into one of our favorite movies <laughs> the more <laughs> yeah. i talk about it the more i'm like this movie's really fucking good there's a there's two there's two things i want to touch on before before we get out of here absolutely and the first thing because you were very kind to share with us all of the uh, or a batch of the shorts yes uh, from the director and we and we watched all of those and i a theme that kept coming up, I mean, well, first of all, Kate Moran is in a lot of these, and she is an absolute babe. 
And yeah, I am starting the Kate Moran fan club, by the way. We will gladly join. Yeah. <laughs> um, but something that he likes doing with her, because he does it with her the most, but he does in almost every piece that we watched by him is he likes pinning her or somebody up against the wall or backing mm-hmm. them up against the wall. Uh, I mean, there's two of the shorts where the whole thing takes place up against the wall. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, in Knife and Heart, and backs her up against the wall. And there's just like this idea, this 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 very kind of scary idea of just like, you don't you don't want to be you don't want to be in that position like and again it's kind of exploring the two ways like there's this very passionate way especially in the by the kiss short where it starts off as passion and then it start it's and it's kind of sexy and then it gets very upsetting and you're kind of starting to dread like anymore because it's kind of this series of people coming in that she's interacting with you just kind of start because they come in they interact with her and then they leave and you just kind of start dreading the next person coming in because it just seems to get a, be getting progressively worse. Yeah, it gets very, very aggressive. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's just like, but there's also like this in um, intermission. It feels like it's kind of it's it. it there's this comedic sort of um, approach to it. Like it, there, <laughs> there was a moment where Kate Moran was dancing and the person she was with wasn't, it reminded me, it was very Jay and Silent Bob. <laughs> so, <laughs> there was like this comedic sense to it, but then it was like this, it was linked to memories and love and remembering. And I, I, I don't know, there's, there, it's a really unique device. I haven't seen used as frequently by a single director, but I feel like he uses it really, really well. I really liked that intermission short film. Yeah, it's uh, it's great, and uh, it has themes that fit into I see Echo to Knife and Heart mm-hmm. and stuff we've talked about, like the ghost lover mm-hmm. coming back, and uh, just that dealing with the loss of that, even though they are they are interacting and they're having this space together. They still have to talk about in terms of desires rather than what they have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's the song that she dances to in that uh, one of the lyrics in it is life is too sad. Tell me you love me. <laughs> I'm like, Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. I really like the juxtaposition between the two songs too. Like the first yes. one, the song and dance is like so poppy, but also almost robotic yep. in how it goes. And then the second one is just like so unstructured and messy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a lot more emotional. Yeah. I think uh, I agree with you. I think of the batch that we watched intermission was my favorite, but I thought the coolest was we will never be alone again. It essentially was a joy. Oh. It was essentially a joy division music video. <laughs> like, yeah. It just got a rebel. It was that, very cool. Yeah. It was just so vibey and it's a black and white and uh, it's buttoned by uh, M83. Who's younger. Young Gonzalez. Is that his name? The director. Yeah. It's his brother, and we love M83. And yeah. the, I mean, the the score through Knife and Heart is wonderful, but M- M83 is great for creating something that feels so cool, but cinematic and epic and emotional. And I just super... throw on M83 music when I want to like have a cry. I'm gonna totally. be honest. <laughs> um, but but the button of "We Will Never Be Alone Again" uh, is an M3 M83 track, and it just like again, it just yeah, it just hits you right in the heart and. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it was just, it was so good. Um, and I love that rapid fire editing mm-hmm. that uh, goes on. Oh, and I also just wanted to get your thought on intermission really quickly. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, one thing that I noticed this time watching it, because I've seen that one a couple times now, is so we have people that are having these musical interludes where they're dancing in an empty basketball court while ha- talking about sex mm-hmm. rather explicitly interrupted by moments of like existential philosophy mm-hmm. so is this a sweeted version of climax <laughs> oh man like that's what it feels like to me oh uh, yes yeah the answer is yes <laughs> yeah okay okay cool so i'm so glad that you um brought that to our attention because <laughs> you were on 100 percent correct that's great yeah. <laughs> i love that um, also that's there's of course that's why i liked it uh talk of sex existential dancing perfect yeah it's it's the triumvirate of my heart what does anybody else need in life yeah yeah but it's but you had a another point as well uh i think just the last thing that i just want to want to touch on is for in regard to knife and heart is Mm -hmm. um in terms of aesthetics i just think it's super cool i mean i think the graphic design I'm a I'm a art director slash graphic designer by trade, so that's just the stuff that, <laughs> that I look for immediately. I'm a very visual person, so it's just I love the '70s '80s look. It looks so great. I mean, I and it just sets you up so great, like the the title treatments of all the typography. But that opening shot was very like Blade Runner esque, where she's running toward and is running towards camera, and you have like these red and like blue hues kind of under a bridge vibe, and it's just so great and. I've brought this up multiple times, but the wardrobe, specifically oh. the jackets in this movie, oh, yeah. are fucking awesome. It's just the whole the whole thing has such a great vibe to it. It's it's a gorgeous film, and it's uh, yeah, it it just adds to the story which we've already talked in talked about in abundance. It just adds that extra layer of polish to it that uh, keeps me wanting to come back. Yeah. So glad you brought up the typography of it too. I am such a sucker for great title designs in movies. Oh, like it's yeah. one of my favorite things. It's uh one of the like anytime I put on a new Gas Renoe movie, I'm just like, oh boy, oh boy, <laughs> yeah. gonna get some crazy title designs going on. I believe Tom Ken is the designer on those, and like his work just it slaps. That's the only way I can describe in it. In climax, especially. Yeah. Not that yeah. I've seen that many Gas Renoe films, yeah. but uh the guy seen two does it real well too. I think I've only seen Love and Climax. But yeah, it's so good. I never good. saw Love. It was on Netflix for a hot minute, which seems that shocking. <laughs> yeah. Hey, let's put my 3D porno on Netflix. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think if you're a fan of title title sequences, I think, yeah, what's done here? I mean, Saul Bass, like he did all the classic vintage mm-hmm. uh, Hitchcock uh, title sequences. And then... Um, there's a there's a studio right now. I'm gonna I'm gonna look up the name as I'm filling the dead air. Um, but they do a lot of title sequences. Imaginary forces. They do a lot of title sequences for um, a lot of um, films and TV series that are coming out now, and they just infuse a lot of storytelling into their title sequences. So I oh, cool. I recommend checking them out. Imaginary forces is what they're called. I am gonna write that down. They do Stranger Things. Uh, yep, they did the Stranger Things opening. Um, they've done like stuff like the Morning did Show, Haunting of Hill House. Uh, Maybe I'm not, not sure. They did Anne with an E, which is oh, which is gorgeous. Um, yeah, they, you could go down a rabbit hole. They've they've done so much work. They're essentially like the 
the go-to studio for title sequences in Hollywood right now. They're absolutely crushing it and winning awards for all their work. So, Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Kylie, do you have any final thoughts? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm bad at final thoughts because then I just want to start new conversations. So my final thought would be, I, like, I liked this movie even more a second time. And I think it's criminal that people don't know about it enough and that I like we didn't know about it. It seems right up our alley, like horror, favorite genre, things that make us sad, also favorite genre, queer. It's going straight to the top of the list if it's if it's a queer film. So I I am so glad that you, Lori, talk about this movie all the time, got us to watch this movie and we've been able to talk about it twice. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm really glad that you were uh when I pitched doing a cross promotion thing, get you get you over to, to talk about this one some more. Because uh, as I think I mentioned at the top, this came out of doing uh, covering this on your podcast because uh, you both had me on Bad Dad, Rad Dad to talk about horror movies for Halloween, and that was fun. That was a lot of fun. So I'm glad that we got to dip back into that. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's been really fun to talk about something this in depth. Yeah, we've been. We've been batting around ideas of how to make make spoiler versions of our shows because, yeah, it's fun to kind of deep dive a little bit further and to put this kind of thinking into stuff that we really like and really care about. Right. So this was, this was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. What we started doing when we first started the podcast, and we're trying not to be spoiler heavy, but there are movies we want to talk about that we knew we couldn't have the discussion we wanted without doing that, is we just started with bonus episodes. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Just do sort of like a half hour bonus episode. It was like, okay, we already talked about this movie a bit, but now we're really going to get into it. And I think that's and what I When I say we do. started doing that, we did one, and then we're like, fuck it, we're just. That's our whole show. That's, that's, it. Good <laughs> that's just our show now. Awesome. Yeah, I think we're going to yeah. maybe do something like that sometime soon. Well, this was a, this has been a fruitful discussion on this movie for the third fucking time on the show. Um, I think uh, this might be the last time I discuss it on the show, but knowing me. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows what the future holds? But before we call it a day, we do do a thing here where we like to recommend movies. Think of it like if the film, if the syllabus of the course that was this discussion is knife and heart, what's the additional text? What else would we, would you recommend someone check out to, to build on what we've spoken on today? So I was reminding Elliot that we needed to do this and I told him what I picked and he said, damn, that's what I was going to pick. So Hopefully he thought of a second one. Um, what came to my mind, it's not a horror film, but if we were looking at um, Queer Melancholy, I would mm-hmm. put Weekend by Andrew High on there. Okay. I, I actually have, n- I tried really hard to find YouTube interviews to figure out if I'm pronouncing his last name right. It's H-A-I-G-H, but hey, Andrew Hay, maybe. Um, have you seen that one, Lori? I have not, no. It's, That's um, the 2000 mid-2000s yeah he the fellow who made it also was heavily involved in the tv show looking which is one of our favorites Mm -hmm. um but it's got that i think there's a effective lineage between these two like emotional lineage i would say cool Mm -hmm. i for for my recommendation I mean, when we were kind of unpacking the movie immediately after watching it for the first time, the first movie that kind of came to my head was Tatum. Mm. But that's not what I'm going to recommend. 
even though I that is a that is a great film. I'm actually going to recommend uh, the other film by Julia DeCorno, Raw, which I think just in the kind of vibe of you know kind of exposing a person and who who they are and wanting to you know kind of pull that apart and expand on the the uh, how complicated it is to be a person that functions within a a certain kind of setting and how you grow and how you change and how you want to present yourself to other people um, and where it's okay to be selfish or not be selfish. I think that this is a very, a very (laughs) unique way of kind of, of kind of delving into that, but it's also just a really, it's a really great horror film that uh, has some very visceral moments in it. And it's, it's really great. So yeah, I recommend the film raw. Good choice, good choice. Well, now I definitely want to check out Weekend, and uh, I'm never upset to revisit Raw, <laughs> so that's not too bad. Uh, my recommendation is going to be, uh, well, in this movie, uh, Knife and Heart, the camera operator is played by Bertrand Mendico, who is another filmmaker. He mm. did the movie The Wild Boys, which we've covered on this podcast before. So I'd recommend his movie that came after that, After Blue, Dirty Paradise, I can't think of a movie that's more, in a while at least, that's more love it or hate it because it's a fucking weird movie. Mm. And I think I think I would have absolutely loved it if it wasn't quite as long as it was mm. because there's a lot going on. But if you want to see a sci-fi epic about uh, a planet uh, filled only with lesbians that are journeying the wastelands trying to find Kate Bush, this is the movie <laughs> for you. Look at... Uh... Good synopsis there. I like that. <laughs> it's a fucking weird one, and it has a banger of a score too. I don't. I'm not sure who did it, but when I ordered it, there's the option to get the the vinyl with it. And I'd never seen the movie, but I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna chance it because every time I've been like, I'm not buying the soundtrack. I haven't seen the movie. I've regretted it, and then go back, and the soundtrack's well sold out. So no. I risked it, and I'm glad I did. Nice. Okay, well, that should do it for us today. Is there anything that either of you wanted to plug about what you got going on or your podcast in general? Elliot, plug our show. I already talked about it at the start. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this was uh, this was so this was so much fun, and yeah, I think that what better way to get into our show, Bad Dad, Rad Dad, than starting with the episode we just did with Lori over uh over oh it was last week now that that the episode yeah, was, dropped. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, please check out our show, Bad Dad, Rad Dad. We talk about thoughts, feelings. We watch, we kind of run the gamut of the kind of films that we that we were watching. And, um, yeah, we uh, join us to talk about Bad Dads and Rad Dads and all the films that we watch. Uh, we drop new episodes every Thursday. And you can find us on Apple, Spotify, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can follow us on Instagram at baddad.raddad and engage with us over there. Yeah, that's us. It's a it's a lot of fun for a show too, uh, and I, I say that listening to it, having not seen movies more often than having seen them, because you cover a lot of new movies as well. Mm. And like I said, I'm a bit unplugged from that, but I enjoy the show just the same. It's like, oh, I haven't seen this movie, but you talk about it in a way that it doesn't. If anything, it makes me more excited to see these mm. movies. So that is, yeah, that's the goal. We try and be a mo- like movie recommendation so that we're such a saturated world. Like there's not enough time to listen to all the things we want to listen to, watch all the things we want to watch, read all the things we want to read, see all the people we want to see that we hope we can help people 
decide if something's worth their time or not based on how it made us feel and what we thought about it. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that you, I'm glad it works. Uh, thank you for letting yeah. us know. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's very bold. I'll say it's very bold of all three of us to want to dump it or jump into such a uh, oversaturated podcast market, but going at it real hard yeah. because we all love it so much. Because we're all awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Don't listen to other podcasts. Just They're listen not to us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, uh, I, I can't say that without repping my my uh, my friends over at I Hope You Suffer. Listen to the three of us, and it's a good go. Yeah, that's all it's you need. Shout. All yeah. you need. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks again for for joining us, and uh, we will continue having episodes in the future. By we, I suppose me, but I will have you both back at some point. Gladly. Yeah. Anytime. Yeah, and Love it. Well, really glad. And um, I'm thinking it'll probably be about monthly episodes going forward. But for for a little while now, my plan is to drop episodes of Gutter Flicks, our very brief offshoot podcast that no one listened to. So before we ended it, it was like eight episodes. So I thought, eh, just to keep the feed going, I'll just intersperse those in this feed as well. So maybe get more ears on them. They won't replace episodes i'm not doing this in place of recording new stuff just it'll be an addition to because i feel weird being like hey listen to all this old this uh new content that's sh- should i record like two years ago <laughs> so yeah all right but until next time uh this has been queer horror cult and we want you to take it easy and keep it sleazy mm-hmm.